bonds. Where's the capital for that? In the Caymans, or under the mattress, or wherever you put it at zero growth. The money stays where it is, but what's going on in the world today? There's always some excuse. There's no cash in this house. Not since the last bust. Check the vents. You are listening to Pot of Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos, one at a time. Season four! Here we go. It's crazy. The crew is back together. John is back from his jet-setting days and jet-setting ways. Welcome back, John. It's great to have you. It's good to be back. Starting season four, episode one, for all debts, public and private. The title is verbiage on actual money. I checked. Actually, it was kind of hard to find actual money because I do everything by (laughs) Apple Pay now. So, like, I had to, like, look around for cash. Oh, I, I brought a $20 bill. For but, verification. Yeah. This episode could also be called Meet the Bacchieris. As we get to see Bobby's family, his wife Karen, two kids, Sophia and Bobby the third, something in common with John. Correct. Also being the third. Like Thurston Howe. Bobby's son was a guest on the podcast. I'll release that episode soon. This episode was written by David Chase, directed by Alan Coulter. No World Trade Center. Yeah. No World Trade Center in the opening credits. The first episode to have them removed. This is, of course, the first episode after 9-11. Which is so weird. I've been watching these 9-11 conspiracy documentaries. Recently? Yeah. Because of the show? No, just recently. recently. Do you have some conspiracy stuff to share? It all comes back to banks and, like, financing. So that's where, like, it really is all about getting paid. I think more importantly, just, it's interesting that Sopranos really captured the shift in America. Because we didn't have, like, a moon landing when we were... Yeah. That age. But this is like, this was an event. I think everybody knows where they were when that happened. Totally. Where were you? I was at home uh, about to start my first day of uh, junior college and stayed home. Where were you? I, it was my first year, my first day at school, and my grandmother died on September 11th because... You said that last week. Yeah, because the nurses were distracted watching the first tower on TV. I was uh, at home... From college, I was attending summer school at UC Davis because I'm such a nerd that I actually went to school in the summer, too. Oh, I was going to say, why were you at summer school? I was at summer school because I wanted to graduate early. Oh, my God. Because I was a double major. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. (sighs) I'm such a fucking Indian. I went. I was home. I was about to get up in the morning. My mom lived like 40 minutes from UC Davis, and I would drive to campus every day in the morning and then come back. And I didn't go because of the towers. I watched it on TV. Um, but I totally remember exactly where I was. I remember eating Sun Chips Originals and watching. Um, this episode originally aired on September 15th, 2002. Wow. So pretty much one year, uh, four days removed from the event. Did you know there was a 16-month gap in between the season? Long gap. The age of the kids and where they are in their life mm. it didn't really align with the length of time in the show. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm trying to think of other shows that have done that. Like Lost had a pretty Game of Thrones long middle. Game of Thrones has done it, and it never works out. People get really upset. I think this one was okay though because we didn't have the we didn't. It would have gotten a lot more traction had it been in the air, the Game of Thrones era with everybody memeing and talking about it and podcasting about it. Yeah, but back then it was like it was away, and and 
What was on HBO during that gap? So you had uh, Sex in the City. There you go. Mm-hmm. Six Feet Under. So go. I don't think HBO minded, but I mean, as a fan, yeah, he'd be ravenous. Like, right. You had a lot of cliffhangers in season three, and I, I get angry if I have to wait a couple yeah. months for the next season. Yeah. Were all the shows mandatory to take out? things with the Twin Towers? Because I know Sex and the City in their beginning sequence, the Twin Towers were replaced with the Chrysler building. I don't think it was mandatory. I think it was artistic respect. Well, and if if the characters in the show are going to talk about it, you certainly can't have the building still there because they're living Mm, in that same universe. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. The episode starts with the New York Times, not the Newark Star-Ledger I thought about whether or not this was a nod to something New York Times during this time. I, th- I was thinking that the 9-11 coverage probably resulted in a lot of new New York Times subscriptions. Hmm. Like their subscriptions probably spiked. Yeah. And Carmela probably got a subscription. I remember learning. For, I lived in California. I grew up in California. I remember learning for the first time, though, the importance of the New York Times of being the newspaper of record. It mm-hmm. still is. So uh, it was interesting to see that first. Yeah. Okay. Respect to the arbiter of events unfolding before us. Influence peddling is not a crime, we hear Carmela say. This statement is directly connected to Assemblyman Ronald Zellman, in my mind, who later tips Tony to some real estate scheme. Cleverness already starting. You miss it. You think it's benign behind a newspaper, but there's so much stuff going on. Again, David Chase is penning this episode. It's a nice way to uh, introduce the big ideas of the season without giving it away. The whole idea that anybody can be bought if you try hard enough. And that's what this episode is all about, right? Money and Mm -hmm. where it goes and what direction it goes, right? Edie Falco looks into the camera. I love it when we get a little fourth wall teardown action. This was that. She's looking at AJ, obviously, but she's also looking at us. Kind of when you think about, uh, John mentioned how long of a gap there was, this could also be She's kind of reconnecting with us a little bit, right? When yeah. she looks into the camera for a brief moment. The last time we saw something like this was when Christopher looks into the camera when he is surveying the landscape of the Richie April mm. uh, situation. One of the great things about premiere episodes is we go back to past things. So there's a little bit of Richie. Whether that's implicit or not, it's it's there. Mm-hmm. Mentioning him, there's a lot of other names I'm going to drop at you guys in a second. 88 pounds of fish... For his assistance is another line from the article that Carmela's reading. We get a fish reference, right? A little short of the weight of Big Pussy, but it makes you think back to him nonetheless. At least that's what I thought. Yeah. Fish, pussy, right? Right at the start of a new season. So now we cut to Tony. This is the part that just makes me... Someone asked me today on the Q&A, like, favorite season. Mm-hmm. I think I finally accepted and admitted that season four is my favorite. Really? I think season four is Kobe Bryant in his prime. I think it's LeBron James in his prime. I think it's MJ in his prime. And you're going to love those players when they're at their best. Yeah. This full steam. Well, and you mentioned full steam, but I think the writing and the story really slows down in this season. But I think, burn. I think it's because at this point, David Chase was allowed to do whatever he wanted. He had established a story. He had the hearts and minds of America. And uh, I've read things before that, like, David Chase doesn't like his audience. And I don't think it's that. But I think he was just like, this is me now. You're going to get the story I want to tell. And if you don't like it, then tune out. Yeah. I love that you said that because in the beginning of a player's career, 
It's dunk, 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 flash, flash, flash. But once you get into your prime, once it's your team, you dictate the tempo of the pace of the game, you run the offense, you take the last shot, this is exactly that. Yeah, he didn't have to justify to anyone anymore. He didn't get away with anything. Thank you for getting on the dance floor with me on that NBA (laughs) reference. I love it. So here's what I love. This is, again, to your your theme of this episode now, David Chase running his own show. Cut to Tony walking to get the paper. We get our little piece of nostalgia Mm -hmm. from the show, right? We're home again, right? Every time we see that, another day, another season. The song, World Destruction by Time Zone with John Lydon, I never listened too much to the Sex Pistols, but they are a thing that I feel like the show gives. The fact that it was played at the beginning and the end uh, made me listen to them on the way over here today. And there's a couple of bangers, man. There's a couple of bangers. There you are. can see why they're... What do you make of the song choice? I think it... I mean, that genre of music makes me anxious. I feel like that song is really intense. And, like, the lyrics are really crazy. If you actually read them, they're very political and blah, blah, blah. But, like, for the Sopranos, a lot of the syncs have been older songs or contemporary songs that were very obvious, but not for the choice of where they are. So this, to me, was, we're, like, upping the ante. Like, they're taking bigger risks with their syncs, to me. This whole season has definitely more left choices for music. Again, balls in his court now. I want that song. Totally. It, it comes. I'm sure David Chase, though, was a fan. Oh, of, for sure. Yeah. Time Zone was an electronic band headed by Africa Bombada, who I think he's mentioned in an interview as being a fan of. Africa Bombada, for this Time Zone project, collaborated with a different musician for each song. That was sort of the so conceit cool. of the whole thing. For this song, he partnered with John Lydon of the Sex Pistols. This song has appeared again in television. The season one finale of Mr. Robot. Mm. And Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot, is is a person who I'm a big, huge fan of. On the David Chase spectrum, he's like, he's trending in that direction, in my opinion. Uh, It would be a great story if that was a David Chase Sopranos homage, the use of that song. But that makes sense why they're using it for Mr. Robot and for this episode. Because it's a very, if you explicate the song, it's a very frantic song. The production's very weird. It's like, it makes you nervous. And Mr. Robot season one is basically world destruction Mm -hmm. via cyberhacks. Exactly. Yeah. It's perfect. That's a great show too. Perfect use of the song. Great, great show. Uh, So Tony looks to his right when he's walking down or his three o'clock. Okay. Another nod to Pussy being there once. Season two. Uh, Star Ledger says a couple of things I pointed out you guys in the notes is 24 worth your time I can't help but think that David Chase had the last laugh on that uh, not while The Sopranos is on <laughs> 24 is not worth your fucking That's time funny. I didn't think of okay? that there is recovery and there is hope more messaging okay 9-11 mm-hmm. this is post 9-11 style writing more intention the sports page says next year starts now, to which all Lakers fans said the moment the Raptors won the finals yep. and signed AD, next year starts now. Another beautiful season premiere tie-in, though, you know, that's next year starts now. The season four starting now. Welcome to season four. Welcome to my show. It's too on the nose not to be just by accident. Yeah, that but these you have the headlines. to. But John, you have to freeze frame these things. Oh, you do. Because <laughs> looking at it, it's gone. He's not being like, look, I'm letting you know that I'm watching over your shoulder. It's there for you to see it or not see it. Yeah. Right? So this is the part that I love the most. It's a great juxtaposition, right? Carmela's reading the New York Times, Naya, mm-hmm. but Tony Soprano 
opts for the Star Ledger. The New York Times takes us away to other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. an international, global newspaper of record. But then the Star Ledger brings us home, right into Tony's driveway. There's something about, something beautiful about the symmetry there. Totally. I love it. Okay, cut to Deborah prepping for work. We met Deborah last season. She's got a baby. Is that baby going to be used in the episode once Tony's family finds out? Again, just placing little crumbs there. Is that baby going to become a plot point? I don't know. I'm just putting it on the table. Okay. (laughs) Why did they train the camera on her? Will Arnett. I hate this. Plays her husband. Do you hate Will Arnett or you hate this? I just hate that Will Arnett is her husband. It's just like weird. And I understand he has to start somewhere, but it's just weird. There's a long list of characters on this show that just don't fit when you know who they are now. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lady Gaga. Wasn't he a comedian? Wasn't he a comedic actor? From Toronto. We the North. I hate him even more. (laughs) So he, the reason I mentioned him, he's Agent Mike Waldrop in the show. Um, He, of course, has gone on to do amazing things in his career. Arrested Development, I think, is the big one. He's fucking Lego Batman. Oh, that's exact. So (laughs) my son, Sam, he is one of my son's favorite guys. Even though Sam doesn't know it, he is the voice of Lego Batman. And his baritone is signature. His baritone... He would be good for a podcast. He would be good for a podcast, but he would also be good for an album. Ooh. If he did an <laughs> album of, like, Christmas classics, yeah. like Bing Crosby in the Will Arnett Lego Batman baritone... Yikes. Sign me up. So, cut back to Tony in the backyard, rifling through the paper. There's movement in the bushes. Could it be ducks, John? Could it be ducks, Naya? I didn't love this. I felt like this was a little obvious to, like, the nostalgic of the ducks again. To the pilot. I know, but it's like, we know with the ducks. I don't know. I liked it. it. I liked it and I didn't like it. I didn't need it. See, for me, it's calm before the storm. We know that shit's going to go down in The Sopranos. We know that somebody's going to get whacked. We know that bad things are generally going to happen. But this is a moment where, this is a moment of humanity. I'm okay with it. It would be too perfect if it was ducks. It ends up being a squirrel. The thing of beauty here, though, is his face change. Yeah. The bipolarity of Tony Soprano. So we, we, we see that he's just still depressed, right? Is that, yeah. where, that basically a, is what I'm supposed to take for, away from that? It's still. an ongoing thing. Yeah. You know? But he seems um, so happy. So but, that really would have made him so, brought him so much joy. But we're sad clowns that, right now. Yeah, we are. We're sad clowns. Yeah. We are. Like we're ha- yeah. We feign happiness or we portray happiness on the outside, but on the inside, we're crying. You know? I bet so, if those ducks came back, he wouldn't even be as happy as he thought he was going to be. So rather they don't show. So he can put all his hope into the ducks coming back to fill his happiness. It's like the feeling of like, if I meet this person or it, it, what, would it, what would this person be like in real life? And then mm-hmm. you, you meet them and they're actually not that great. Exactly. And it's kind of like a huge disappointment. We learn AJ's in a new school. He obviously couldn't go to Tobin Bell School of uh, Hard Knocks. Couldn't go there because of his panic attack. But he's in a new school. AJ says, you just reveal your own ignorance. I love when he starts saying these things. Which is a nod back to a previous season of Well, when AJ's saying, what's the point of it all? I don't remember the line exactly. Nietzsche. Again, blast from the past. Everything, he's threading the needle, dime, 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 dime. Part of the reason I think this is happening is what John said. We've had a one and a half year gap. Yeah. You forget. Aston, oh, this is a fun thing. So Tony shows AJ the Aston Martin DB7 uh, that gets his attention, okay? Teenage kid, Aston Martin, great car. He finds it more interesting than the Italy-related news that Carmela's reading. 
Aston Martin, of course, is a super high-end luxury British mm-hmm. car. But few people know this. Italian private money saved Aston Martin, and they owned a majority stake in Aston Martin, resurrected the company stylistically as well, and helped float it in public markets. So the Italians... Like a Scatino bust out. Saved. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) But the Italianissimos saved Aston Martin. Aston Martin has this reputation as being above Lamborghini, as being above Ferrari. Tom Brady drives... Aston Martin. James Bond. James Bond. Well, he's British, so it makes sense. But there's Italian blood flowing through the veins of Aston Martin. It's an amazing story. That is interesting. Netflix documentary waiting to fucking happen, right? right? (laughs) Carm checks herself in the oven. Enter Furio. Naya. New storyline. Sets up white caps. I'm not going to spoil it, but this sets up the finale. Her checking herself out in the oven. There's a script out there on the internet, one of the listeners sent to me. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a specific episode copy of season four, episode one, with David Chase's actual handwriting on it. Wow. He specifically wrote in this particular scene, Carm readies for Furio, Mm. something to that effect. Love that he emphasized it to drive home the arc of the season. If you listen to the Federico Castelluccio interview, he even said before this season started, Edie Falco yelled across the room to him wherever they were at and said, it's you and me this season. So there was this thing where they wanted this undercurrent of emphasis. It's not in, no, nothing is spoken about Furio here by Carmela, obviously, or other than where's Furio, but there's a little note, That's exclamation enough, point yeah. from David Chase saying, ready for Furio. Yeah. Love it. She did that, uh... With Father Intentola, I felt mm-hmm. like, too. She this is her nonverbal, I gotta look pretty. And we've talked about this. Yeah. She likes to be attractive to the men that come through her door or that she surrounds herself with. Talked about it with Vic Musto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about that? We kind of talked about it with Naya a minute ago off mic with past relationships, making sure you're rock solid so that whoever's in your laying in your wake is jealous as fuck. I think it's that, but it's also she's like a traditionalist. She's not going to look bad in her own house. Like, I think if it was anyone coming into her house, she'd still want to make sure she looks like well done. But I do think Furio is an attractive guy and father in Tintola was flirting with her too. So I also think, an attractive guy. Yeah. But he was a priest. But he was giving her the bait, so then she took it. But that's enough for me to know she's interested in Furio. Her just fixing her hair and the things or Big asking time. like And then putting her hand on her hips. Mm-hmm. So where's Furio? Mm-hmm. You know? It would have been nice to see a cut of Tony but he's so oblivious to all of that. That's the thing. There yeah. you go. It's an, it would have been really smart. So, so you're thinking like David Chase now. Mm-hmm. It would have been very easy TV-wise mm-hmm. to cut to Tony because the listener, the viewer's going, what's Tony think? But Tony's oblivious. Yeah. And he's smarter than us. And he's like, look, I'm not going to give you that fucking bird feed. I'm going to show you a bag of bird feed today, but I'm not going to give you any of that shit. Which okay? is why you can miss it. You, yes. This, you might not even know she even likes Furio. Absolutely. Unless you've Just, watched it several mm-hmm. times. And that's why he put a note in the script. Yeah. Because he doesn't want it to be obvious, but he wants the people in the show to know. Right. But wait. Where was Furio? It's not Furio. It's Christopher. Where was Furio? Where is he? Do you think Tony knew about this Barry Haydu thing then? He wanted Christopher that day for this specific reason? Or did that come up naturally? Oh, no. It was totally planned. So he knew when that doorbell rang, it was going to be Christopher. 
Yeah. Tony was playing chess. Like, Got it. Not checkers. All, all the 16 months we've been missing him. T likes to mix it up. Different cars. Let's talk about that for a second, you guys. It's briefly mentioned. Obviously, there's strategy there. But what is the strategy to lose a tail? Not that you guys have ever tried to lose a tail. Or maybe, Naya, you've had a guy chasing you and you wanted to lose him. I chased another girlfriend once. What is the strategy here? Doesn't the FBI have eyes trained on his house? Don't they have eyes trained on his driveway? I think it's not just for FBI. It could be his enemies, his friends. People in power in this sort of world don't want to have routines because the minute you have a routine, there's a weakness and... If the same Something tr- that can be exploited. Yeah. And as we can tell, they're, they're trying a different strategy now. And all of this requires it. Who is it that uh, said it's a business? Yeah. His, his attorney. So maybe they, they can't spend as much money on all the surveillance right now. So now they're trying another angle going through Adriana. You are just underhand tossing me the NBA references here. <laughs> you got to show the defense a different look. Yeah. If you don't show them a different look, they're going to be able to exploit your backdoor cuts. In car, Dickie was a legend, Tony says. This is the first we've heard of the past in a while, okay? Mm-hmm. The past comes back. Again, season premiere, perfect place to do it. Single-handed, another use of that term, hunted down a New England crew. That is a nice piece of meat with very little bone. A story point for the movie. He brought the war home to them up there. I read that. I looked at the subtitle. I read the script to make sure it was still there. Was Dickie Moltisanti from Massachusetts? I'm not sure. Gigi is from Massachusetts. The way it was written makes you think that Dickie Moltisanti is kind of an outsider. Yeah. There's a theory that somebody just today mentioned. I'll talk about it because it's perfect for this episode when we get there about what actually happened to Dickie Moltisanti. I don't know if you saw the question that was posted on the stories. It's a really interesting theory that I've never heard before anywhere ever. So we'll talk about it when we get to that point. But it sets it up for, Tony talks about New England. Was Dickie an outsider? Was Dickie not part of the original Jersey thing? Obviously, we're going to find out in the movie, but what a great topic of conversation. So you think that he, yeah, I guess. He brought the war home to them up there. Again, I'm no English major, but I have read my fair share of books. I brought the war home to them up there. So the home, meaning New England, meaning Massachusetts, he brought the war home, period. If you end the sentence there, Dickie brought the war home to Massachusetts. Again, I'm parsing like a motherfucker. No, I'm but feeling I'm just you now on the, the reference, table. yeah. So I'm putting it on the table. We'll come back to it in a moment. Naya takes a drag because it's too much for her <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> it's too much. We're going to go. Uh, that line just made me think. So pay attention to potential tales always. Again, as mentioned, Tony's always looking. He's always looking, and I said this before, he's always looking until he's not. True. Cut to Tony and Junior. The nurse Is she really a nurse? She was also a guest on the podcast. She says she was not just a nurse. It was written in the script. You are not a nurse. You are an FBI informant. But I beg to differ, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Junior needs more money for a trial. Mm. Tony says the split stays the same. Makes you wonder, what is the fucking split? I didn't ever catch what the split was. Did you catch what the split was? I never discuss it. I never discuss it. We're not supposed to fucking know because we're not in the thing. Gabavish! 
Naya, what the fuck does that mean? I don't mean? know what that one means. Oh, come on. Gabavish. Gabavish. Two fucking years. Nobody. Okay. You have failed me for the last time, Admiral. Tony's got cash flow problems of his own. I call bullshit. This sets up one of Tony's best monologues ever, though. That's why that line was written. He's got to say, I got cash flow problems of my own so he can wake up mad the next morning. Let's get there. Mm-hmm. Cut to another one with cash flow problems of her own. Again, David Chase is not writing with a pen. He's writing with a motherfucking ninja sword today. Yeah, I know. Okay? <laughs> Angie working at the grocery store giving out kielbasa samples, which so was a sad. trivia question. So sad, right, Naya? Again, the surgical precision with the story point transitions. On one side of the spectrum, we have a kingpin lamenting his financial situation. Cut to a widow of a rat hawking hot dogs at a grocery store. The portrait that he's painting for you. This is bipolarity of the regularness of life on full display with ease and suave. Like LeBron James. Swish. I was going to do a swish. There you go. You got me. Fist bump. (laughs) Like LeBron James throwing a no-look dime out of a triple team. It's so subtle you'll miss it. Cut to Deborah hanging out with Aid at Christopher's place. Yeah. Chris shoots up. The music that's playing while he shoots up, John, the sun is sinking in the west. So good. Nice timing mm-hmm. right there. Also a nod to all the the cowboy movies Tony watches, which, which I thought gonna, was cool. Which is, this episode is littered with, right? Mm-hmm. Tony is... Fucking infallible Pope Tony the 23rd or some shit. You never know... This is a really powerful line from Christopher. While high, or almost high, you never know I could be on the endangered species list. That's foreshadowing. Yeah. Game of Thrones-esque foreshadowing. But before Game of Thrones, David Chase did it first. Do you think he really means that, or do you think he's just being dramatic? No, I think he... I think no, it, this I think episode this has all comes. sorts of them. Nothing is the same after 9-11, and I think that's what you can keep coming back to. It's not going to be so rosy. Yeah. Starts with cash flow problems. Totally. Starts with spouse problems. Then you got the kid problems. It's just going to be a domino effect of fucking a rain of shit. <laughs> or, which we're going to get to. Or you can watch the news, because everything ends. Yep. Setting us up for the next scene. Cut from one vice, you guys, drugs, mm-hmm. to another. Ice cream. Tony overloading on some Turkey Hill. I vouch for Turkey Hill. You can only get it on the East Coast, and I miss it. I never had it. You never had it? No, it's legit not. ice cream. He sits down to watch a Western. Rio Bravo? 1959. Starring? That I don't have. John Wayne and Dean Martin. This movie appears again in a future episode this season. The Pile My. Pile My. Produced and directed by Howard Hawks. Mm. Who we learn about from Noah. Another blast from the past, rearing his head, however tangentially. Enter Carmela. Very Western-like. Totally. The only thing missing here... I didn't think of that, yeah. ...are the saloon doors. <laughs> she could have come through saloon doors and it would have fit. She did kind of mosey in. But totally yeah. mosey. There you go. Yeah, That's the she word. Moseyed in. She totally fucking moseyed in. But I, see, I took it as sort of... Tony is wearing the pants currently in this relationship. She comes over and asks permission to speak to him. She mentions her her pay cut her allowance is lower and like at first tony wouldn't even uh uh, turn down carmella wanted the tv off but Mm -hmm. tony told her just to turn it down and there was a lot of power moves in that one scene i think naya that was her strategy i think so too okay 
to come off as like submissive and like you're my man. You know, can I bend your ear? I'm going to ask it about was, money. It was strategic because she motherfucks him at the end of this scene. She owns this whole scene. This is my favorite scene in this okay. episode. Do you agree with me? I do. She's being strategic. I think so, That's too. why she comes in. Came in soft. To the okay, she came in soft. Also, she didn't come in heavy. Yeah, also because he says, <laughs> what, my weight? Because he already assumes she's going to start nagging him for something. So she's like, no. He tries to disarm her because mm-hmm. he knows something's coming. He's not dumb. He knows something's coming. Tony offers ice cream to her. She wants to talk. She's worried about what happens to her and the kids if something happens to Tony. Great exchange. You're set in perpetuity. There's money in overseas accounts. I don't have the serial numbers. You'll have them when the time comes. Not now. For your own benefit. So you're not an accomplice. Will he give her the serial numbers if it comes to that, though? Is he really going to give her the serial numbers? Yeah. You think? What's he going to do with that money? No, I think he's going to tell his handler, just give her an allowance. Keep the money on lockdown. And if she does something, like run away with Furio, divert the funds someplace else. There's reference in previous episode where he drops the money off to the attorney and says that Carmilla knows how to handle that. Yeah. And, and not to spend it all at once or take it all at once. She'll come in like little increment. Which is a, I'm so glad you said that because I have a huge question for you guys that's coming up. He's, he hides money in this episode and I want to get your explanation of that contradiction that you just mentioned. So hold that thought. She mentioned stocks. She's been reading the New York Times. She's reading the New York Times. <laughs> Love it. We're just, we're just fucking threading needles like crazy here. You got to be high in the corporate structure to make that work. Apparently Tony's been reading the business section too. Enron-type connections. Love that. Carm introduces cousin Brian to get them going on some asset allocation, which I fucking love. We don't see him. By the way, I'm going to just say this. At this point, David Chase himself, the man, could use some asset allocation because he's bringing in the cash money season four time. He's probably (laughs) thinking of that asset allocation himself. So this is probably a personal little vignette for himself. You know, what are we going to do with all this money? Yeah. Well, the, the mention about things coming to an end. Yeah. Too, it's... He... I think at this point knows that the TV show is going to end at some point and well, he um, wants to let the audience know season that too. Four, season, most shows don't even make it to a season four, mm-hmm. right? You know that at most it's got a five, six, seven year life so you're getting close to the end. Absolutely. And even the best shows, they want to stay within that five to six. They don't want to drag it out. They don't want to Game of Thrones it. Cousin Brian. We don't see him in this episode but his existence is put into play. Nice little breadcrumb. Didn't Chris make any Enron-type connections during his Wobistics run, though? Wasn't that part of the strategy there? I don't know. Because remember, they were, they were at, in a hotel room with a bunch of Gumars, and, and Pauly was there, and Christopher's like, I gotta go, and Tony says something about, like, we gotta get, like, we gotta make these connections mm-hmm. with the money. Like, I always thought that that was part of the strategy of Wobistics, was to get in with the Wall Street folks so they could do a little asset allocation with them. Maybe. maybe. They not. were like penny stocks, uh, yeah. Jordan Belfort. Okay, the, uh, the part about the the, the the Carmella and Tony part that I love is when he's talking about where the money is, and he says, check the vents, so, you know, yeah. with his hands, because he's like, yeah. I don't know what he's doing, but he's he, he almost is like, it's like an admission of guilt, that because we see him moments later hiding the money. Like, check the vents, because he knows, he think, he's so happy with himself, he realizes that I got that shit in the bird feed now, yeah. you know, like... Check the vents. I moved it across the street. So good. You know, it's, but it's so he's telling proud of himself. He, he knows that Carmela goes around and looks for money. Yeah, too. But, but, yeah. but he's eating ice cream. I know. It's Check the so vents. Good. Um, 
Everything comes to an end, Naya. So good. Caption that, screenshot that for life. The scene ends. Tony's ice cream is all melted. When Carmela has the last word, she came in strategic, John, but when she has the last word, you know very little will be left behind. One word, Dracaris. <laughs> it's worth noting that the line had even more significance as the world was still in the wake of 9-11 when it was written. Yeah. Cut to pissed Tony. The time immemorial speech. One of the greatest. One of the greatest of all time, of all film, TV. We go from John Wayne, melted ice cream, an otherwise quiet night at home, to the time immemorial speech. Crossing the bridge. So good. Did you see Abbey Road, or was that just me? When they cross the bridge together, it looks like the Beatles album cover of Abbey Road. Uh, The three men walking in unison, minus Ringo. The room, the lighting, the presence of the actors and light and framing is powerful enough that you can watch this sequence without sound and still be moved. I had a note just going back to the walk. Uh, that Was that the same area where Tracy yes. had died? So That's it was ex- a little bit of a nod exactly. to the, the water flow. Thank you. Yeah. That is exactly, uh, Alan Coulter directed this episode, and we talked about that. I asked him that question, exact question, were you homaging it? He didn't remember. Oh, wow. But he directed the Tracy episode where she dies, and he directed this episode. Interesting. And low camera angle, low water. Camera angle. It's as if you're watching them cross through her eyes. Ugh. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. So good. Very good. Very intentional. That was not fucking accidental, no matter what anybody says. I want to know what a zero growth in this family's receipts. There's no fucking money. You're supposed to be earners. That's why you got the top tier positions. So each one of you go out to your people on the street, crack some fucking heads, create some fucking earners out there. Again, the writing, I just love it. The partial shot of the receipt calculator thingy. Not exactly the money counting machines we got familiar with during the Walter White era. Am I right? Mm -hmm. You know those little machines? It shows you the level, right, that Walter White was operating on and the level, did you watch that show? Yeah. And the level that Tony Soprano's crew was operating on. Walter White, as we know, was in the empire business and I, it, it feels a little, especially at this particular moment, that Tony Soprano was kind of in the, it wasn't in the big leagues. I think it's all perspective. and It's all relative. This, this is a, a business, and especially when you have a business that needs to create income through your, your people. This was like, a, I've been in many meetings like this when sales are a little low or things just aren't picking up the way they want to, and... You have to sit through this and listen to your boss sort of put a fire underneath everybody. It's just crazy, though, from the scene we came from. He's being chewed out by his wife and how fast I can be terrified of him. Exactly. I, I just, it's the contrast. It's crazy how incredible you can make that switch of like laughing at him because he's kind of a joke. And then suddenly I'm like, holy shit, this With is him as a ice boss. Yeah. yeah. The bipolarity mm-hmm. of the show. It's crazy. I want to know why there's zero growth in this family's receipts. I just love that line. It is so delicately and carefully crafted, the writing. It's not, like, again, if I ever got the chance to ask him this question, like, Aaron Sorkin, we know, gets up, 
right? When he writes, Aaron Sokin wrote, wrote The West Wing, he wrote Few Good Men. He gets up and he talks to characters. So sitting down, he's one character. Standing up, he's another character. That's kind of how he gets into the mode. But like this is like even the ins and the thes and the theirs, it's, it's so specific and so particular to Tony Soprano. You can watch this every time and just marvel at it. It's the economy of words and the power, like mm-hmm. Naya alluded to. We saw him sitting in front of a puddle of melted ice cream. And now, like, the hair on our neck is rising. Yeah. I think it's crazy to see just his acting duality, but do we subconsciously think of him as a shitty boss a little bit because he can't do this? Like, with the scene before, is there any subconscious where I think maybe it's seated like, mm, he can't fit really keep his crew together and they're making money because deep down he's probably not the best financial boss. This is the boss, though. This is what a boss has to do. Yeah. He, I, I call, you know what I'm asking? Kind of yeah, like... I just I call bullshit on his issue with money at this yeah. moment. And I think he was just looking at himself more of like, well, I'm not going to kick any more to Junior. Mm-hmm. I, I want my share. Got it. So he's just like expecting business to be better. Do you think part of the reason he's doing this is to help Junior? No, he just doesn't want to do it himself, right? Yeah, I don't think he wants to have to fork the bill. I think part of the reason this exists in this episode is because of 9-11. Okay. Things are just bad right now, and so it's a way to address it. People have written about this. I think the autopsy's even mentioned this, that the show doesn't talk about 9-11 okay. until Bobby and Tony are in a diner and they stumble through it. Yeah. So it's not even addressed until three quarters of the way through the episode. But the life and the culture and the world of 9-11 is very much like filtered through into their water pipes, so to speak. And there was a recession. And there mm-hmm. was a recession, exactly, yeah. immediately after, right? The stock market crashed. I love and when they, a little they bit. make Syl be like, our thing doesn't get affected by... Oh, Syl, break it down for him. What two businesses have traditionally been recession-proof since time immemorial? Certain aspects of show business and our thing. Tony cleverly uses... Oh, note the flag pin on Ralph's lapel. You notice the assemblyman the, has yeah, one, too. I was going to say. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, again, nod to 9-11. Tony cleverly uses his uncle, the boss of this family which is a line that is so ironic. You know, he's not the fucking boss of this family, but he says that because it's Tony's clever way of insulating himself, you know, from the feds. The feds still think that Junior runs it. It's kind of glossed over a little bit. You take it for granted, but it was strategic. Tony's trying to insulate himself, and he does it with great success. He uses the boss of this family, Junior, to rally the troops, but we learned Tony's kick to Junior to be quite a pittance, because he says it's going to stay the same, which means it can't be that much to begin with, okay? Do you think the crew knows? We don't know what his cut is. Do you guys think the crew knows what Junior's cut is? Like, how can they not know, right? Wouldn't that be something that gets leaked? How much is the how much is the boss making? Wouldn't that be a topic of discussion around the water cooler? I don't think you generally know until you're looking at the books. Okay. Mm-hmm. Patsy would know. Patsy's punching the receipts. It's possible. Anyway, just an interesting thing to think yeah. about, right? Like how do they how do the guys feel about what the order of the division of, you know, the the pie is, right? And Junior is the boss of after all. And why isn't Junior, you know, he's on he's not on house arrest anymore. He's a, he's free and clear. Little little bits of like why are we listening to you kind of stuff. Again, I'm just saying that that's stuff that no one ever talks about. It's just assume that Tony's the boss, but here we learn that the boss of this family is actually Junior. Right. Tony's hiding cash. The bird feed. What's going on here? Actually, hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. Hold that thought. Uh, 
ties into what you said. Uncle Ralph's coming over to dinner. It's not Uncle Ralph, Tony says. Uncle Ralph and Janice do blow together. Again, a great movie if I haven't said that already. Johnny Depp. Tony notices their absence from the table. Janice also quotes a Herman Melville line from Bartleby the Scrivener, which I think only Janice could pull off, but I was a little surprised by. Um, She's talking, of course, about Jackie Jr. That's just scribes of David Chase's level throwing stuff in, but the character that he chose to say that word was a little curious to me. Well, did you notice how drugged up Roe was and Mm -hmm. was literally watching Janice flirt with Ralph and didn't seem to care? Was she drugged, though, or was she sad? Both. Well, he mentions that she's on on medication. On medication. What medication is she on? I missed that. Probably some antidepressants. Antidepressants? You caught that too? Yeah, she looked fucked up. Great line. Ralphie's getting all the great lines lately. Got one last season as well. What is a Porsche, you guys? Or what is a Boxster, I should say? It's a Porsche with panties. I'm letting the biggest fan say it, right? (laughs) Janice is all over him. What's her play here? His is obvious. Hooking up with the boss of the family's sister, but what's her play? You think he's he's already that dialed in? 100%. Oh, he didn't see that coming, though. Oh, but that's her. I mean, I yeah, think she that's... loves what Tony hates. That's oh, her attraction. That is some profound shit. He also has cocaine. She wants it. I think it's interesting that we don't see more of their sexual encounter. I think that was intentional, and I'll just leave Thank that God. there. Thank okay. so <laughs> God. Until hear, later. We hear more stuff about him. We get a little line from Hugo. We learn about Hugo's background. Again, which was a trivia question. Love Hugo. Rest in peace. Danielle comes to the house. I don't know why this isn't a bigger fucking deal. Shakes Tony's hand. The scene goes way under the radar. An FBI agent infiltrated the Soprano house just like that. An FBI agent hanging with the Sopranos, like hanging with Mr. Cooper. You see it on her face, though. The acting was perfect because it was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. 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 She's in. She's like looking up. She's in. She's in the red fucking keep. And she's not even a qualified, like she was just a hot chick that they're like, she'll be perfect for this. Like, can you, she's how not, big can you make your how hair? How qualified is she Is what really? Kubitosa wanted. Yeah. She scored, right? This is a jackpot for yeah. her. Yeah, she's moving up the company ladder soon. Which is why I think we see her baby, because she's a new... Like, it's like, you see her struggle. She's a new baby. She's gotten married. Like, it's you see her life. So it's like, this is, I feel for her because she's struggling, I would imagine, having a new baby. Her mom's calling. We hear her mom. Like, she's busy. She's working. This is a big thing for she her. She wants to have a career and be a mom. Yeah. But in, in 2002. And this is just crazy. This is where she's, where she is. Literally, she goes from a desk job exactly. to Tony Soprano's dinner table. Yeah, that's. You know? It also just goes to show that, like, people underestimate women. I hate to say that. But, like, none in a million years would anyone ever think, I don't know. I feel she like could she, work, think, she could work her way into— Or even that she'd be a threat, this random person. I don't—I mean, oh, Tony was checking Tony. her out. Tony yeah, wasn't like, suspicious. he wouldn't even think, yeah. like, who's this? It's just, you know, this Adriana's is, dumb, hot friend. This is the second example of Tony being dumb and oblivious this episode with Furio and now with this. I like that. That's true. Very good observation. It's the first time I feel like the FBI did something right, in my opinion, with this show. Yeah. Tony sits down with the assemblyman. So I got something cool that I found. Insignificant to the whole story, but when Tony leaves the bird feeder place, the guy that he has put the bird feeder in the car, his name is uh, Bill Garvey, and he was the location assistant on The Sopranos. Interesting. So he did all sorts of stuff. He's 
credited for White Caps uh, and some of our favorites, like 51 episodes in total. He's since moved on to be location manager for movies like The Avengers and uh, Spider-Man 2 and Captain America. Amazing. Yeah. Esplanade news, we learn in the Italianissimo, uh, Frelinghuysen Avenue. I would love pictures of Frelinghuysen Avenue 2019. (laughs) Please DM them my way. Omni's putting up a hotel there. I, you guys, recently stayed at an Omni. You did? And I got to say, their standards have fallen off quite a bit. Where? Palm Springs. A Galleria, we learn. It's a demographic imperative. Great line. Another great, I don't know why, it's just a great muscular line. Okay? I don't know how else to say it. Uh, The Assemblyman encourages T to invest on Freelinghausen Avenue. Could be the next Tribeca. Tony's story was great and sets up another anecdote for the movie to explore and get us all warm and tingly when it does. Tony goes to see Junior again. Junior says that Bobby is moving up. Cue the music. Well, we're moving on up, moving His current guy, Murph, <laughs> is falling apart at the seams. Talk about a straw man, you guys. This Murph guy, right? We never hear from or see this guy. Then all of a sudden, he's getting bumped. He's a device to propel Bobby's arc, I get it. But poor Murph, there's a spinoff series, John, waiting to happen. The Life and Rise of Murph, Junior's Cutman. <laughs> Very proud of that title. I, I had it as Murphy's Law. Uh, Murphy's Oh, I like that. Too. Okay. I just try to get a boxing reference in whenever I can. Tony's hiding money in the bird feed. Crack corn. Brass tacks. I'm coming back to this now, John. Why is he hiding money from Carmela? Do you think he's hiding it from her? Yes. Specifically. Well, I don't know. I think it looks to me like he's hiding it from her. Why? Given what you said earlier, he goes to the lawyer and says she'll know what to do with it. Is it just paranoia or is there something else happening? I'm, I'm not sure uh, really the motive of why he would hide it from her. Um, I mean, I, later on, this becomes a significant rift between them, this hiding spot specifically, but mm-hmm. it, it's hard to tell. And it's, is it 9 universe- end of the world behavior? Uh, I guess if you go on that note, like when um, the Great Depression happened and... You have all this, uh, uh, I've heard a lot of stories of people that have passed away recently and parents or family or friends will find money in between books and hidden so under crazy. sheets and in these random things um, because that was just how it was done. You you put money away. So maybe this post, the world isn't certain anymore and this was Tony's comparable level of managing that. But I also think too, because they, they mentioned... Uh, you know, he has a job that can float his money or justify that he's making a living. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to wash all of that. So I think he's forced to just have to have some, some cash sitting somewhere. I just think they don't deep down trust each other. I mean, I wouldn't trust Tony after but, that. But we've talked about it. He does trust her. He trusts her enough in a crisis to not use all the money, like, carelessly. And remember, Melfi said, you'll never... Yeah. Leave her. She might leave you, but you'll never leave her. Maybe that set it off, actually. 
I don't think he thinks that she would spend the money he saved for her carelessly, but I don't know if he knows for sure that she would do her own little side hustle somehow. And I think Carmela would. She, I mean... Real estate. You know? Spec homes. I think she... Just sort of exploring this more, it's like... Uh, do husbands, at the end of the day, want to keep something... They don't aren't completely transparent with their wives with all their finances, are there? This could be control, because... We find out Carmela is really in it for her own financial gain. Yeah. And she's sticking with Tony because of the life that is provided for it. And if Tony knows that, then controlling that money gives him his ability to keep her. Did you watch Big Little Lies last night? Not the second episode. But okay. holy shit, the Meryl Streep. She's amazing. Oh, she's so, so good. good. Are you watching that show now? I haven't started it yet. Okay. I've watched it up until this new one. I just haven't seen it yet. There's a great line that ties into this. I won't say it, obviously, because it'll ruin it. I'll watch it tonight. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned the Great Depression. And the reason I smiled and I started laughing inside was because I wanted to be one of the guys and say... Grapes of Wrath over here. <laughs> John Steinbeck over John here. John Steinbeck over here. <laughs> hey, Polly's in jail, we learn. Do How you a- keep everything from your wife, though? No, no. She, 100% transparency, almost to a fault. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means, but I do believe in complete transparency. I think it's a fucking partnership, it's, yeah. especially when kids are involved, because you have to be a united front, and you yeah. can't be a united front with somebody when you're not transparent. And also, but to your point, Carmela does use money against him. Like, he needed to pay for Meadows, like, that amount of money. Like, she. A donation to Yeah, get her the money, she uses it as a weapon to him, too. So. It's great you brought it up. She uses it to justify her existence, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to use this money to pay for my children's education. So that validates the fact that it's blood money, right? You just referenced Dr. Krakauer, which is exactly what I wanted because you want to talk about the past. Well, and uh, back to Krakauer, too. She got a glimpse of what that life would be like if she left Tony when she went down that aisle and saw... Hot dog stand. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why I wanted you to... I wanted you... Watch the episode tonight of uh, Big Little Lies and then text me. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, Specifically, Laura Dern's character. Love her. So, Polly's in jail. How did that happen in this one and a half year lapse of time? We learn he got pinched. There's always been this theory. I think I might have said it. And other listeners of the show are bringing it back to the surface as well. Did he flip? Did Pauly kill Tony if Tony dies? That's all we're going to say about the end, okay? Like, was Pauly a part of the finale? If so, was this when it happened? Did he flip or does he flip here so we can keep this in the podcast? Is this an opportunity for the feds to flip him getting pinched? leaving it on the table, moving along. So you we do were, know that uh, Tony Sirico's back was, he had some back problems during this, which yeah, led to the, the show to have to launch this storyline. They wrote it in to accommodate his medical Correct. needs. Ironic, right, that he was talking shit about Big Pussy's back in previous episodes, <laughs> in previous seasons, and now in real life, he's suffering back problems. Well, do you think, because I know we've talked before about Tony Sirico said he would only be in the show if he wasn't a rat. Yeah. And, and maybe, because we know how David Chase wants to make sure that he's in charge, that the final laugh is like, you were the rat the whole time. That's brilliant. Mm, and that's I wouldn't put it past anybody, and I've always agreed 
I've always liked the theory that he turned on him because, look, he was on the outs with him in Pine Barrens. He's been on the outs with him a lot. He always complains. He always questions the leadership, subtly, tacitly, sometimes like overtly. So I, I still don't think he would. I think he's too old school. I agree. I with think you. he has too much respect. He wouldn't do it. But it's a great. It's a great David Chase thing that he takes you so close to the line that it could be true, but you'll never know. Right. Right? So we learn he got pinched. He calls Johnny, which is interesting to yes. me. Not Tony, not Silvio, Johnny. And the line, of course, right on time, Johnny says as if he was expecting it. Yeah. I mean, he basically did kind of flip by gossiping all this stuff yeah. in some regards. He flipped families, yeah. for sure. He definitely didn't realize. I just don't think he was aware of what he was doing. Right. He's, yeah, he wasn't playing chess in the sense that he wasn't three moves ahead. Mm-mm. He's just unloading. He's he unloading. That's all I got. Time. We learned it's a gun charge. Went to visit a guy named Lenny, who we used to have a club with. There's another limited series waiting to happen, too. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Okay. Polly and Lenny, the club years. Yikes. He got pulled over en route to Dean Martin's birthplace. Two Dean Martin references in one episode. Dean Martin's birthplace, of course, is Steubensville, Ohio. If anybody's in Steubensville, Ohio, send a picture to <laughs> get, at Get out of Steubensville. <laughs> Do something with your life. First of all, move. <laughs> yes. And then send us a picture while you're driving on your way out of Steubensville, Ohio. What's Polly's program? He screams at the guy who's trying to change the television. Do you have any insight on that? <laughs> it's funny because I, I was wondering the same thing. I, I keep picturing Golden Girls. Tony calls House, says he has to work, you know, to provide. <laughs> Carm kills the stove. I love that little detail. Love that detail. Thank you for catching it. That's David Chase again. He's able to write men and women so well, mm-hmm. like Jack Nicholson and as good as it gets. I imagine <laughs> plenty of people in his New York Upper East Side, Upper West Side penthouse catching him in the elevator saying, Sir, Mr. Chase, how do you write women so well? Icelandic air party is what I have in my notes here. Have you ever flown, have you ever flown Icelandic air? I have. Celebrating Newark's newest hotel. I do have something on those ladies. Please. Um, following the episode airing, uh, there was an Icelandic air spokeswoman that uh, spoke about how they were shocked at the despicable manner in which the Icelandic flight attendants were depicted. But I have a theory about this. I don't think they were flight attendants. I think that was their cover to get into the hotel. Mm. I like that. Or they ask like, how do you get up? a bunch of hookers up to a mob sit-down? You don't bring them up in their whatever. You send them up as a bunch of flight attendants. Carmine asks about anything else on the Esplanade. T withholds info on Freelinghausen Avenue. Great face. Guys, will this come back to bite Tony? We shall see. Mm. Another thought. Shouldn't Carmine have his own boots on the ground for fishing around on stuff like this? Johnny Sack, why isn't the assemblyman meeting separately with those cats? That's a New York fucking family. Or maybe he is. Just putting it out there. Maybe assemblyman's a double fucking agent. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. One reason why Tony gets so mad at him later on. As a politician playing Mm -hmm. both sides of the aisle. If he's a true politician, right, Naya? Yeah. Tony's not the only opportunity in town also why didn't carmine stay and party he's done that he's been there maybe he doesn't like the ladies 
Maybe he's the Kawhi Leonard of the mafia. Not a party guy. I just needed to do that. Cue the Kawhi laugh. (laughs) (laughs) But, you guys, in true boss fashion, he leaves, but not before dropping one of the key lines of the show. Don doesn't wear shorts. All right, come on, come on. Elevate Sidebar question, though. Yes. What is Johnny Sack doing talking about T's backyard attire? Yeah, that's a good question. Unless it's to set up the story point of his GQ subscription down the line. (laughs) David Chase. It is interesting to figure out who said that. Random factoid. Apparently, real-life bosses were bothered by the fact that Tony wore shorts in the pilot. This was David Chase's polite nod to them. Apparently someone reached out to him and said, the show's amazing, but Dons don't wear shorts. So he worked it in. I like it. But yeah, that was the first thing I thought was Carmine didn't care, but he sort of threw Johnny under the bus there. For telling him? For telling him. Interesting. And he's penting up some resentment in Tony towards Johnny. I can totally see Johnny saying this. Like, he was wearing shorts. You know, like, just like, just a tiny dig about Tony. Like, oh, how was the barbecue? Yeah, he was in shorts. You know, just like a But it would be a very private, like, joke among... Totally. That you would not expect to then be used later on. But I mean, we know about Tony's paranoia. Just to pick up on your theme here, he's super paranoid this episode. Maybe he goes home and starts scratching his neck about, like, are Johnny Sack and Carmine talking shit about me? Yeah. You know? T gets Chrissy, leaves Ralphie after this party, Icelandic air party, to which I thought in my head immediately, and I wrote it down, take the nephew, leave the earner. Mm. Nod to the (laughs) godfather. (laughs) Chris is driving while high. Naya, this is a precursor. Very dangerous. (laughs) We're going to see this happen again. Pay attention to that. Could something bad happen? Should he be driving high? Don't know. Melboyne calls Junior. Hospital isn't safe to talk at anymore. Fuck! Mm. FBI agent there the whole time. Pulled to testify at trial. That's why it was her last day. She even said it. She even gave you the breadcrumb. Was it the nurse? She said so in the interview, like I mentioned. But I always thought it was the guy dressed up as the doctor, you guys. Hmm. The askance eye stares tipped me. I don't know. The camera locks on the doctor when Tony walks out of the door, looks at him, they look at each other, and then he leaves. I feel like that's the guy that they have, though, that set it up, that allows on this the to inside. happen. Right. Okay. Tony tells Chris about Barry Haydu. Help me with this one, you guys. Yeah, this I need help with, too. Did the hit for Jilly Ruffalo. I hope of no relation to Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> Tony says, did Dickie do the hit on Jilly Ruffalo? That's question that I have number one. Jilly and Dickie were in the can together. Jilly stabbed Dickie's cellmate to death. When Dickie got paroled, he got revenge. Loyal, your old man, Tony says. What does this have to do with Barry Haydu? I couldn't piece it together no matter how hard I tried. And I read some stuff about it on Reddit that was unsatisfactory. And Autopsy doesn't talk about it. And Seppenwall doesn't talk about it. It's dialogue. It is said to set this up. It is obviously Newark material. Right, like the scene straight up could be this guy. Did did you make anything out of this? For the longest time, I thought um, that maybe this was just a means to, one, get Chris closer with Tony like he was planning, but two, 
kill this guy for a different reason. I agree. And when he said he was set up, uh, I believe that. But today, when I watched it for the last time, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, before he's shot. And he gives up that whole wall. And as yeah. uh, before he's shot, he's apologizing. So that validated for me that you're not apologizing for something you didn't do. But also to take a page out of Game of Thrones, sometimes you say whatever you can say to get out of the situation. That's what I think. And if I you think, want me yeah. to admit I'm guilty, yeah. I'll admit I'm guilty. Cool. Just don't fucking kill me. Yeah. I think he says all this shit to manipulate Chrissy to then go forward and kill this guy. And he's a guy that's just not useful to Tony anymore because he's retired now? Is that is it as simple as that? Because you're not useful to me, I'm going to kill you in cold blood? But that, the, I think there was always plan to... And that this was Use the opportunity. Use him until he retires. Well, and that this is a great, this was a gift to yeah. Christopher. Or Exactly. Or even just to butter up Christopher, to, to pretend to think it's his someone that's related to his dad or something. So you think Tony made this story Potentially. to tackle Tony, to, to get his... I don't think so anymore. I think there's definitely a connection. The why, like the, the stuff we're missing is who had Barry kill uh, Dickie. Dickie. Yeah. I think Barry killed Dickie. I just don't know why that connects to this this thing. So here's a theory that somebody said today, and I lost my shit over, is that Tony and Johnny Boy killed Dickie. I probably agree with that. Tony Soprano? And his dad killed Dickie. Because Christopher says, I don't know if I believe, I just heard it today, literally. And I was like, wow. I said, explain yourself. And I haven't been explained to yet. Here's the thing, though. After he said that, I went back and watched the scene. When Christopher says, the guy with the sombrero, is that him? And then he says, I heard he was carrying my crib. And Tony goes, very matter-of-factly, no, he was actually carrying something else. Mm, But it could be that if you want to believe that. Tony, if, if that's true... Tony was there and he knew exactly what he was holding right before he killed him. That's why I think like this whole movie is going to be, everyone's going to run back to this show and watch it 17 times because every second of that movie is going to have some tie-in from a mention, I feel like. Totally believe it. But now do you see, so Emoltasanti was, it was their crew. It was his crew. It wasn't the Soprano crew. To get power, the Moltisantis would have to be waxed. And if this is true, and I'm just making this up as I go here. I don't have anything scripted in front of me. If it's true, this would explain why Tony has a soft place in his heart for Christopher. He wants to keep him close. He's my cousin. He's my nephew. He's my blood. Yeah. And he tells Melfi in this episode, he's the closest thing. Not my son, but this is the closest thing I was dealt. To keep your friends close, Naya, Mm -hmm. and your enemies closer. If he found out the truth about his dad then Tony would be in danger. Yeah. And he ends up, obviously, I'm going to edit this part out, he Christopher before he would ever find out the truth about his dad. Also, Tony's definitely shown us that he has a bit of empathy for people he's wronged in later things too. So he might yeah. potentially Absolutely. have this weird And he's also showed us that guilt. he has the potential to kill someone who's blood. 100%. So... I don't buy this whole story that he gives Christopher. No. This whole Jilly I, I think it's Ruffalo just thing? random. It's like... Okay. Because it doesn't... That makes more sense to me it's in some non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. That's why I wanted to see... The fact that you guys can't explain it back to me yeah. gives me more reason. Not to believe that he actually killed Dickie Moltisanti. It gives me reason to believe that he fabricated it because he's hiding something. And Christopher, to his own volition, says, 
you know, it doesn't even even matter. Tony wants you dead, so I still got to kill you. Barry is listening to Lady Marmalade as he pulls up to his house. Uh, Who sang that? Originally? No, no, the 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 newer version? version. Uh, Christina Aguilera, Aguilera. Maya, Pink, and Lil' Kim. And Lil' Kim. Nice. And Naya? I wish. Magnum P.I. is on. The marlin over his fireplace. Any symbolism there? I caught a marlin today. He when he walks through the door, there's fishing poles too. I okay. think it was just to tie in the set. And he's got. I liked how he had a Magnum PI shirt on. Yes, for Magnum PI playing in the background. And you can catch meta. Marlin in Miami. Is Barry wearing a members only jacket? Do they put the logo of members only on the cut of the pocket too? Because it looks like a members only insignia, but I couldn't read it. I didn't know. Did you that. see it? No. I didn't okay. that Look for that again. I, I saw a members only jacket, which would just be all 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 the more perfect, right? Cut two. I love diner scenes. In anything, in any movie, in any show, if there's a diner scene, it should win a fucking Emmy, in my opinion. Tony orders his eggs scrambled, no oil, with tomato slices. He's trying. That had to come straight from a doctor or Carmela. Well, this goes back to why he had two M&Ms on his mm-hmm. ice cream sundae. But a whole bowl, a whole basically a half a carton of Turkey Hill. Bobby's food has onion rings. Just laying that on the table. <laughs> Ooh. Tony's all about that steak. Okay? Those stairs. I've been there, by the way. Especially with my current cholesterol situation. Looking at what everybody around me is ordering and me cursing them like voodoo. You die, motherfucker. <laughs> while I eat my egg whites and no toast and a, a side of fruit. Cottage cheese. Cottage cheese. Cut to the Quasimodo Nostradamus Malaprop quote. One of the classic lines in the show. This is the second time that Bobby and Junior have had a, or Bobby and Tony have had a moment together. They had a moment together in Pine Barrens in the car. And they're having another nice moment together in a diner. Two favorite places to have moments together with humans. In the car, in a diner. Love, 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 love. Heart, 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 heart. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, if I ever got to talk to David Chase, I would ask to do it in a diner. At the counter, like no eye contact, just at the counter. Just side by side. Just side by side. So anyway, the Nostradamus Malaprop quote is perfect because Tony is the one that corrected him. Usually Tony's the one that's giving the Malaprops. Mm-hmm. Here Tony is correcting it. There's a nice little awkward symmetry there. Cut back to Barry, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this. Why did it go from Barry to Diner back to Barry? I think it's just for time reference because he knocks him out. And then you need some time or another scene to go to him waking up from being knocked out. That's exactly what it is. Thank you. By the way, how amazing was Christopher Moltisanti's hair when he's in the car so looking cute. at the sombrero guy? The way, the, the way it was like messed up a is little bit. Is that him? And the sombrero over there. Cut back to Barry. Did Tony set up Chris to lock him in to this thing of theirs? Remember, Tony, Christopher wanted out. Tony tells him, like, you're gonna, I'm going to like look back over here in five minutes a few seasons ago, and if you're here, great, and if you're not, I'm going to expect you left and walked away. Christopher's sitting outside on the stoop at Tony's house, and he goes back in. But Tony's always thinking in the back of his mind that Christopher doesn't want to be in this thing. I think your next sentence is what I agree is with. Is this the way that he locks him in? Because he tells Melfi later on, I've started the process of bonding him to me inseparably. A cop kill 
on his head, which is exactly what Barry says, you don't want a cop kill on your head, is Tony so smart on the chessboard 19 fucking moves later that he knows that if I have Christopher with a cop kill, he's locked onto me for life. He's retired, though. Doesn't think, matter. Doesn't I think matter. it's matter. double, though. I, I think more of the emphasis is on the mental mm-hmm. uh, connection of your father was killed when you were young, and I'm going to give you the guy that did it. And you're going to be forever indebted to me on a, on a moral level because I gave you the guy that killed your father. But then plan B, if push comes to shove, yeah. cop killer, here's the evidence. What evidence would he have, though? What am I, a forensic, uh, <laughs> what am I, a forensic uh, uh, CSI now over here? It's I probably mean, both, but I think Chrissy's really emotional, and that yeah, will get him. He's taking advantage of his emotion. But I don't think it works. Yeah, well, we shall yeah. see. Mm-hmm. We shall see. In the background, we hear the sound of the TV. Special Investigator Finnerty, you're under arrest for impersonating mm. an officer. Obviously not going to spoil anything. But we're all looking at each other. We know exactly what the fuck he's talking about. (laughs) And Finnerty, as far as Sopranos is concerned, was also an imposter. Mm -hmm. Impersonating somebody. Amazing. Good catch. Amazing if David Chase knew what this was in season four. Just laying it on the table. As was Barry, an impersonator, you guys, who profited handsomely from being a crooked cop. Lots of meta fucking shit happening in the sequence that was about 60 seconds long, okay? does it so well. Mm -hmm. A lot of chicken on the bone. It's a drumette, John. (laughs) It's a mother... It's a triple pack (laughs) drumette. Triple pack. It's when you order the wings and they give you 80% drumettes. (laughs) The only... And all the little wings are on the bottom. By the time you get to the bottom, you're completely satisfied you're like ah there's a couple of wings i'll just knock those out too but i got the wings wings that i wanted for someone who is high and you guys can speak to this better than me chris is a very pro hitman you guys the cleanup the leave no trace the thoroughness and he was high i'm very proud of him i was very (laughs) proud of him in that moment goes to the wallet the napkin it just it was like a ritual he was he's a pro Nah. He's been a pro hitman for Tony since day he one. He left no? the cigarette butts. It was oh, cool like, that he made it look like a suicide, and it would, would yeah. seem to make sense for maybe if someone's retiring, and yeah. they could paint that story. And then he did the random shot. But, nah, it was a little sloppy. Oh. Oh! Little nerd detail. The Marlin had a crack in the nose right before the bullet hits it. Freeze-framed it. So if you look at the Marlin up close, I'll just post the picture in the notes. You can see it. It was set up to be exploded. The news that Carm is watching, you guys, was that related to Tony and his crew, the cash heist? Or is that just an unrelated thing? Tangentially related to... I think it was, again, to remind her how... The life she lives. Yeah, it could. Mm-hmm. that could be Tony. 9-11-esque. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything comes to an end. Love it. Cut to Bobby's wife making food for June. And Bobby's kids mentioned at the beginning. This episode could be Meet the Bacchieris, right? It, it must have been that piece of tail, Junior says, which is a great line. Tony offers to take a property off Junior's hands. This actually helps Junior, but I can't help but feel it's a little more about Tony being opportunistic, right? Totally. So Junior bust out. <laughs> so 
what are you now, the amazing Kreskin, he says. Kreskin is a real person, an American mentalist from Montclair, New Jersey. Interesting. And he was amazing. And he was amazing. <laughs> and he also went to Seton Hall. Oh. Uh, the guy's still going strong today, by the way, at the age, the young age of 84. Wow. Amazing Kreskin. He has a website, amazingkreskin.com. Junior says, I'm an old man that's going to trial. Not much else to say about me. Mm. Cut to Melfi's office. I can't help but think what this means for Tony. Because you see him for a moment before it goes to Melfi. How his life plays out for him. Is he thinking about that? Am I just going to be a guy that goes to trial not much else to say about me? Well, we find out because Tony lets us know in Melfi's office, which is another brilliant piece of setup. She's thrilled, by the way, to see Tony. If you see her smile, it could light up North Jersey right then. He's candid more than usual. She even notices this. I've analyzed it, he says. I've analyzed it. Still endings for a guy like me. High-profile guy. Dead or in a can. Big percent of the time. You've never talked this, frankly. Even with all this terrorism shit, the government has resources up the ass. As far as legal bills... Anthony! What? Why don't you give it up? This is something that listeners should hold on to if they're watching it for the first time. This is basically the Rubik's Cube of our show. The mystery of our faith, you guys. To quote, to, to reference Catholicism. The mystery of our faith, The Sopranos, is this, how does it end? Mm-hmm. Well, there's two ways. Dead or in the can. But we also are reminded by Tony that there's a third way to wrap it up. Three, Naya. Three things. You rely on family. Meadow. Ding, 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 ding. You trust only blood. Meadow goes to law school. I might leave this in. I'll do like a disclaimer. I'm about to spoil the episode. So if you don't want to be spoiled, take 30 seconds, get a glass of water, take a bathroom break, (laughs) pet your dog, give your son or daughter a kiss, and then come back. You guys, Meadow goes to law school. She wants to study criminal defense. She could be a mouthpiece... Tony could be barking orders, turning client privilege. Maybe she wouldn't be the lawyer because you can't have attorney client privilege with family. It might be, there might be some ethical considerations, but she could have a partner at her firm that she runs that is cash flowed by the Soprano family. And the one of the partners at the firm is the de facto mouthpiece. This is exactly what he's describing the third way. He goes out of his way to tell Melfi, you didn't let me finish. There's a third way. If he could be sitting in a wheelchair or sitting in Sicily, Sicilian thing, with uh, like Don Corleone talking through a little phone, <laughs> I want you to do this and I want you to do a little bit of that. Uh, it could fucking work. It could work. They do it in Goodfellas. They explain it. That's all I'm saying. And Meadow will be completely insulated. She's an attorney. She's her firm is representing a client. How many criminal defense attorneys do you? When Johnny Cochran said, "If it doesn't fit, you must acquit," he was committing a crime. Yeah, he was lying. But when you are advocating on your client's behalf, you can pretty much get away with murder. 
all I'm saying. Okay, back to the regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> it's safe to listen to the podcast again. Are you guys with me on that? I, I think it'd make a cool um, Discussion sequel point. to carry on. The ending, you guys, there's a lot here. Mm. The way Chris backs up out of the kitchen. <sighs> did you see it? Did you see what I see? Do you see what I see? <laughs> I love that motion so yeah. much. There is something extremely nostalgic about it. I feel like we've seen it before. A character who takes inventory of their environment, of their situation, or their lot in life, then takes a big breath and then removes themselves from the frame, leaving the viewer, in a sense, paralyzed. That's exactly what happened. I don't know where I've seen it before, but I've seen it before. I saw it in The Karate Kid recently. Ralph Macchio. Shout out, Ralph Macchio. We share the same birthday. Then there's his mother. Dickie Moltisanti's wife. Picture of her husband on the dining table. First of all, would you have, if you were a widow, would you have a picture of him right there front and center every day? Would you have breakfast with him every day? If I didn't remarry, yes. If he was a saint? Yes. You would. Even if you remarried, would you have a picture of your widow on the wall? No. Not your widow, of your deceased husband? No. Okay. The mother is sipping coffee. I cannot help. I forgot. I made the notes for this weeks ago. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus because of like schedules and stuff. I forgot that David Chase wrote it. Mm. When I went back and put this together to sit down with you guys and I realized that David Chase wrote it, I immediately put on my DC cap of irony, right? His mother is sipping coffee in a kitchen while world destruction is playing. Post 9-11. Regularness of fucking Life, even the wreckage of 9-11, the whackings, the messaging here is just incredible. Yeah. Okay. 9-11 or whackings or this or that or come what may, life goes on. The regularness of life goes on, at least while you're a part of it. A great thought from Autopsy's piece on this episode too, the routinization Mm -hmm. of awful events. I don't know about you guys, but I see that as kind of a positive thing. I I see that as kind of a therapy thing. We routinize awful events as a way to endure them, to journey through life, not necessarily by choice, but as a way to sort of like a coping mechanism to soldier on. She's taking a drag of her cigarette. The song is playing. It's a David Chase episode. There's no fade to black. It's only the second episode of its kind. There's only one other episode that has no fade to black. This is one of them. This is the first one. A rare zoom in on the money, specifically Andrew Jackson's eye. Mm. The eye is referenced several times in this episode. A nice end cap to an episode that takes its title from actual text on money, right? Start with money, end with money. And then finally, the song from the intro again. A perfect bookend to a season premiere. The closest thing to a wrapped up nicely in a bow Everybody complains that David Chase doesn't wrap up everything in a bow. He writes the season four premiere. He wraps it up in a bow for us. Uh, It's the closest thing we're going to get from him. Very loaded final sequence. Much more than, hi mom, bye mom. Yeah. Well, from some of the points you made and notes I have with the photos, the emphasis on him making sure she wasn't drinking alcohol, Mm -hmm. you created this thing where she hasn't, dealt with it enough or she still is dealing with the loss of her husband the father of her child and that whole last step of him 
putting the 20 there was like his ability to, I've cleared this house. I've right here is a, an artifact that I've gotten revenge for something that you haven't you know, dealt with. And it's in her presence. It was such a weird, I mean, you talk about what's the one thing that could tie him back to that murder. Maybe it's that 20. Ooh, fingerprints. Wow. You know, it's a, the random listener, man, random listener. I'm just like, Ask me anything. He said, does Tony and Johnny Boy kill Dickie Moltisanti? That could explain the Michael Gandolfini being in it. And like the age range doesn't match. So like maybe he's a fast forward and this is his first job with his dad. It's interesting also because they haven't revealed who some of the characters are. Hmm. You know the actors are in the movie, but you don't know what the name of the character is. Like we know who Polly is now. Billy Magnuson. We know, obviously, who Johnny Boy is, but there's a couple of people who we don't know, and that might be intentional. Right. Because then crazy-ass people like us are going to put it all together, and we're going to know that Dickie Moltisanti was killed by Tony yeah, Soprano. Totally. You know, and that, but that would, that would be actually, it would be so poetic if that's actually what it is. Because season four, episode one, basically launches it, and it would, again, it would just validate, I'm, I don't need any proof, I don't need anybody to convince me that David Chase is a genius, but it would truly validate that he had, that if anybody here is playing chess, it's, it's, it's David Chase. Yeah. Guys, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Naya. Thank you, Vic. We'll be back next week with episode two of season four. See you next time. (laughs) 